Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking, Taymor. How are we? <laughs> We're doing great. I just went on the longest run I have ever ran. I ran 8.6 kilometers. Um, Why did you do that? What, what on earth possessed you to do that? I'm training for a triathlon, mate. I'm running a triathlon on August 8th, which is uh, less than a month away. That's pretty soon. It's pretty soon. And so yesterday I went swimming at 8 a.m., intense swimming training with Mac. This weekend I'm going swimming both days. I'm, I'm basically going to be swimming three times a week until the triathlon and probably running two to three, running like 10K-ish two to three times a week. Okay. Like why, why are you doing this? This is, this is a bit rogue for you. Is it? Also, like very natural <laughs> extension of my usual activity. <laughs> <laughs> so you go from watching David Dobrik's vlogs on the toilet <laughs> for about half an hour a day to trying to run a triathlon. <laughs> uh, no, it's kind of on a whim. Uh, on a whim, um, Mac, who you know, our friend, who's also been a podcast, a repeat podcast guest, is really into this stuff. You know, I think we've talked about it on the podcast with him as well. Uh, and he basically, I think we were all having dinner once, at Pizza Express. And he was like, lads, there's this triathlon coming up. Do you want to do it? And then Lucas was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then, and then like, um, one of the other lads was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, like, not do it. Now. Yeah, you can't not do it now that three of the lads have said they're going to do it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, if I want to stay one of the lads, I've, <laughs> I've got to do it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was kind of on a whim. I, I ran a 5k on kind of on a whim as well also through mac a few years ago and i was very glad i did that and it was quite a transformative experience well, running a 5k was a transformative experience <laughs> <laughs> okay why was running a 5k a transformative experience baby steps yeah uh, i think it, it was just transformative in kind of helping me overcome my own mental limits i think even even for this triathlon like it's i i think i think for, am, for amateurs like me you know your mind gives up long before your body does and so you know, I never run close to, you know, I'd, the, the most I'd run before this was like six and a half K or something. And when I'd go on runs, I'd, I'll often intend to go out on like a 5K run or something. And I end up running 3K and then being like, ugh, I'm kind of tired. Like, you, you, your mind is weak and then you just, you make up a reason why you should turn around and go home. Mate, I, st I stopped my 5K runs after the first 1,000 meters. When my, when my Nike run up says 1,000 meters in six <laughs> minutes of 49 seconds. And then I think, you know what? Time to get an oat milk latte from the coffee, <laughs> coffee van guy who's just next right. door. And then I, I saunter home and, and drink more calories than I, than I burned off. Yeah, so I, th I think it's just, uh, it's weak-mindedness. I think it's, it's the, mental, the mental stamina. And I found that yesterday as well. So yesterday I was doing swimming with Mac and the pool is 25 meters long, right? Look, I'm going to miss out any pointless details about this stuff. I think there are interesting insights on the other end. So just bear with me while I give you details about things and trust that they're necessary. I'll trust the process, yeah. Okay, so the pool we went to was 25 meters long. In the triathlon, you need to, you need to swim 1,500 meters, okay? Oh, gosh. 1,500 meters, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to stop, like, in a pool, you know? Mm. Um. And so I'm, I'm trying to build up to being, being able to swim 1,500 meters without stopping. Uh, and the last time I went swimming was like two weeks ago or something like that, two to three weeks ago. And I could barely manage 50 meters without stopping. So two lengths of the pool, but barely do that. And at the time, I felt like I was at my limit. When I, when I did 50 meters, I was like, oh my God, I could not possibly swim any longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and this time again, like, you know, I managed to do like 50 meters, you know, managed to do like a hundred, 150, 150, you know, without stopping. I was like, man, this is my, this is my limit. You know, I definitely can't go more than 150. And then Mac mentioned to me, um, Mac's also helping some of our other, other friends train. Uh, he mentioned that one of our friends, Arthur is, um, currently being able to do like 300 meters without stopping. And Max said, you know, four, four weeks before the triathlon, you know, that's that you, you need to be at least at that point, basically. And so then that, that kind of removed the mental block in my head because I was kind of like, 
you know, well, if, if Arthur's doing 300 meters, like he hasn't been training that much. Like it must be possible for me as well. Yeah. And then I just did it. I just did like 300 meters. So it's like Arthur was <laughs> no, I wasn't uh, even Roger Bannister for you. Sorry? Arthur was Roger Bannister for you. Right. He was my Roger Bannister. He was my Roger Bannister. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. To, that just like the stupid mental blocks. Um, and like today, for example, I could, I could have run, I could have run 10 gate. I, I didn't need to stop at 8.6. The reason I stopped at 8.6 was because earlier in the day, Max says, uh, I, I told Mac, yeah, I'm going to go for a run. And Max says, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. If you can do like 8.5, that'd be good. <laughs> if Mac had said, if you can do 12, that'd be good. Then I would probably, I might've done 12. I would have at least done 10 <laughs> just cause there was that anchoring. <laughs> and so I was, I was anchored at 8.5. Hmm. I ended up doing 8.6. And I looked at my phone. I was like, well, Mac says 8.5 is okay. <laughs> 8.6. Checkmate Mac. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's all just complete rubbish. <laughs> it's all just a mental thing. Mm. Yeah. I've had a, I've had a similar thing when it came, when it comes to swimming, um, I think it was like last year or two years ago, uh, Molly and I would go swimming together at uh, the local leisure center. She's an absolute pro at swimming. It's like in, absolutely insane. Can just swim comfortably like 1500 meters, you know, not barely be out of breath by the end of it. Yeah. And I was in that position where I was, I was barely like struggling to do a length <laughs> and then two and then three. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, there was just one time where I was like, Molly, I've done three lengths. I can't possibly do any more. And she was like, no, I think you can easily do 10. And 10 was just such a huge like, whoa, you're saying I can do 10? I was like, all right, let's give it a go. I just did 10 lengths. And that was like 250 meters. Wow. And I was like, like length, length, like four to 10 were sort of identical to length three in terms of like how hard they were. Yeah. 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 Um, and at that point I was like, oh man, maybe I have just been kind of holding myself back. And then I, I never bothered taking the, the, the swimming thing particularly seriously, but I definitely noticed an increase in my kind of water stamina as I was mm. doing more and more of this. Yeah. And there was a great moment a few, it was a few months ago where I saw my personal trainer, in the changing rooms and i was like wow this guy's super ripped because uh, he's like you know six pack and everything like that and he was getting changed into his swimming shorts i was getting changed into my shorts, swimming shorts i was like oh cool and then we kind of walk kind of together have a bit of a chat walk walk into the area and he dives into the pool and i go into the spa <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh okay <laughs> we're not the same <laughs> this explains a lot you're in the pool i'm in the spa we are not the same <laughs> um it sounds like your uh, training is going reasonably all right I should have started sooner, but I think I can get there. Um, yeah, like 5K seems like child's play now. And so I think if I, you know, if on my next run, I run like 12K, if I, if I can do like 12 or 15K before the triathlon, then 10K will be like, yeah, it's easy. The, the thing is, I'm not too fussed about speed. Um, I'm happy to do it kind of slow. So like today, my average pace was like five minutes, 30 per kilometer. That's pretty good. It's a solid minute faster than mine. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not fussed about speed. My goal is to not drown in the swimming. Mm. and to not walk in the running and on the cycling like you can just cycle slowly <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah <laughs> just want to get through it okay fair play are you enjoying the training yeah it was enjoyable yeah really like while you were running you were having fun i was listening to the audiobook of unconditional parenting okay <laughs> so you have time of my life <laughs> <laughs> not a great time <laughs> um no it was fun yeah okay but the swimming wasn't fun the swimming was not fun yesterday I think if like waterproof headphones were a thing, swimming would be more fun. They are a thing. I've, I've tried finding them on the internet. I haven't made You can get bone conduction headphones that work just as well in the water. Oh, have we tried them? Mac, is, Mac used to use them. He said that works, yeah. Oh, fair play. Should try some of that. Um, anyway, yeah, that's, that's how I am. I'm feeling pretty good, honestly. I got a, got a chicken cottage on the way back. And actually, this time last week, I was also having a chicken cottage alone in my flat on the phone to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> here we are again. Life's, life's going really well. Um, yeah, I'm wearing, I'm wearing brand new pajamas. Uh, I've, I finally bit the bullet and just bought two of everything, one for home and one for the flat. Mm. So a bunch of stuff arrived today. Pajamas, electric toothbrush, yada, yada. What pajamas do you use? I just bought some off of Amazon, mate. There's nothing just fancy. Just like pajamas? Literally, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, not okay. fancy. I've been, I've been using scrub bottoms as pajamas for the last like five years. And people always tell me that like, like proper pajamas are so comfortable. Um, I've never really tried them. TBH. They're comfortable. I don't know what, what counts as proper pajamas. These were like two for 20 pounds on Amazon, like highest reviews, whatever. Nice. Fine. Anyway, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, just got back from a five, five, six day trip to the Lake District with the squad. Um, friends from, friends from the medical school. That was pretty solid. Um, Sadly, I think I've contracted a bit of a cold. Uh, really? My nose has been a bit like runny for the last day or two. 
I have, a, I have had two negative COVID lateral flow tests and I have a PCR test pending, um, which I suspect will probably come back negative because, well, you know, the two lateral flows were negative as well. Yeah. It's just a bit grim. Like I, I just haven't had a cold for a while. And so I've been coughing a little bit, been having a bit of a runny nose. I hope it's not COVID. It's probably not. Um, and so I found that like, I, I was meant to film like two videos yesterday and I had a write-off day. So I thought, nah, allow it. And I was meant yeah. to film three videos today and I ended up filming one. Whoa. So, yeah. But all in all, life is pretty good. Having a good time. And Any good yeah. insights from the um, Lake District trip? Mm. Yes, a few. One is that walking walking is quite fun, provided the path is somewhat treacherous. Oh, hello. Um, because when I imagine walking, like my mental model of walking in like the countryside is literally just walking on a flat thingy mm. and not really kind of going anywhere, just sort of walking for the sake of walking. Yeah. But on this trip, the walking was really fun because it was like we were climbing up this sort of mountain path in these sort of thingy areas in order to get to a waterfall. Mm. And mm. So it was like goal-directed walking rather than mm. aimless walking. And yeah, walking that, that it felt it had a purpose. And then at one point we were up in the hills and we sort of got a bit lost. And Rachel, who was kind of like coordinating us with some app, the Ordnance Survey map app thing, was trying to kind of carve a path through like the thickets and like sort of nice. hitting bushes out of the way with our hands mm. and stuff. Mm. And we had like two babies with us as well because our friend Abby had had two kids with her, one of which is like three years old. The other one is like nine months. And so all of this added a, a real element of like, you know, excitement to what would have otherwise been a walk. And I realized that like, I quite, I quite enjoy walking, um, especially when it's with friends. I feel like if I was walking solo, I'd quite enjoy it if I had, if I had the appropriate audiobook on. Mm. Um, so that was insight number one. That's really good. I never thought about that. I'm a big fan of walking to waterfalls as well. That's my, wherever Lucas and I are abroad, that's the, the classic activity. Let's find a waterfall and let's go, let's go there. <laughs> find a waterfall and walk there. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, the other insight was that I really want to get a dog. Really? I was, I was seeing these like, you know, people walking with their dogs and it just seemed like the coolest thing ever. Just like having a dog who would walk with you. What? What's yeah. What's cool about that? I don't know. There's just something special about about the thought of having a dog and it just seemed like such a because like it's all it's all well and good like walking with friends and stuff but you kind of know what your friends are like as i feel like walking with a dog it's like <laughs> the dog it's keeps such, you guessing <laughs> <laughs> the dog keeps you guessing yeah there's such like unbridled enthusiasm in the dog when they're sort of like panting and like running from like jumping like jumping over the rocks and like sort of coming back to you and i was watching all these people with their dogs and i was thinking this looks this seems really cool. I really want to get a dog. Wait, so what, what's the, like you want, you want a little thing to take care of or like? No, it's not a little thing to care. It's more like, I think it adds another element of adventure to life. Like okay. having a dog that you go, I, I, I wonder if it's similar to how people say that going on holiday, visiting the same places with your kids once they're sufficiently grown up is more interesting because then the kids are like engaging with the place and like being enthusiastic about it. Or like going on holiday with some with a foreigner is particularly interesting if they're in the UK for the first time because everything is novel to them and it's kind of cool. Hmm. I wonder if it's if it'll be a similar experience potentially having a dog, um, and so I decided I was gonna it was gonna be kind of a wife, dog, kid in in the in that particular order. <laughs> wow. Okay. Because um, oh. I feel like the, the the issue with the dog is that it, it's just a lot of effort to look after, and it does kind of curtail your freedom a little bit. Um, and so once I've gotten like the hey, I want to travel the world and stuff out of my system. Hmm. then I think when I'm ready to settle down, then get married, get a dog, and then have yeah. a kid would be a, a, a pretty good order of events. <laughs> yeah. Freedoms will be thoroughly curtailed by the end of it. Quite. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that was insight number two. That was insight number two. And then I, I had dinner with a, a friend, um, another friend, Charlotte, last night, and she has a dog. And I mentioned this to her. I was like, Charlotte, I really want to get a dog. And she was like, you have no idea how much effort a dog is to look after. Um, and he was just sort of telling stories about how like, they had their old dog for like 14 years. And in 14 years, the most amount of time the dog was ever left on it on its own was like four hours at a time. Because what? yeah, apparently you just can't leave dogs on their own because they like get really sad or, or because they might like poo, especially if you want to keep the house locked because they don't know that they can go outside. Um, yeah. Like if you want to go on holiday, it does seem like owning a dog is quite a hindrance. Yeah. So she was saying that her family hasn't been on holiday abroad for like 14 years because they always had to go within the UK where they could take the dog. Oh my I think god! If you can afford to put the dog like with a dog sitter or someone, yeah. or in a kennel, then that would make it easier. But she was saying that they love the dog so much they couldn't possibly put put him in a kennel because it just you know they don't know how the kennel would would look after the dog, and it really becomes a member of your family's whereby you genuinely care about the dog. Wow! And I was like, damn. And she was talking about how how some of the dogs that they were looking at were like you know three thousand, four thousand pounds to get the the right breed, 
and some of them there's only like two breeders in the uk and they have to really vet you and interview you before they let you have let you buy one of their dogs um <laughs> before giving you the privilege <laughs> yeah the privilege of and how like you know one of one of their dogs food bill was like 200 200 250 quid a month like 50 quid a week for the food bill for the dog um and then like 60 quid a month like insurance for the vet I had another friend who who came over whose dog ran into a nail or something and ruptured their esophagus. And so the dog was like vomiting blood and stuff. And they had to take him to the vet. And the vet was charging somewhere in the region of like £5,000 for the operation um, because they didn't have insurance because then you have to insure pets. And I was just finding out all the stuff about dog ownership that I'd just never known before because I never seriously entertained the idea of getting a dog. Yeah. Um, but that chat with Charlotte last night has really made me realize that, okay, this is definitely something to park for now. And in the future... When I'm married, ready to settle down, stay in one place for a long time, value yeah. stability and all that kind of stuff, then definitely dog is is on the cards. Wow, nice. It's quite the range of insights. Walking, dog ownership. Yeah. Um the, the third insight actually was the third insight was that um so this was quite a long holiday. It was like sort of five five days where most of the guys on the trip were like keen on outdoors more so than I was. I was probably the least outdoorsy, well, the least if not second least outdoorsy person on the trip, just generally. And so they were keen on going for walks every day. Or I was keen on going for walks like every other day. Or the walks are fun, but like I also wanted to do other, other stuff. And it just so happened that I had two events for the part-time YouTuber Academy to run on the Sunday and on the Monday. And so I ended up driving to like a nearby hotel with Wi-Fi and a conference room and just chilling there for a few hours while I was doing these events. And that felt really good. Like it was really nice in a way having that like solitary break from the holiday Ah, while the rest of the gang was out walking and I was just sort of sitting in a hotel room on my laptop. <laughs> and I realized that this is also what I'm like when it comes to generally going on holidays where I really like a kind of one day on, one day off. Um, and we were doing this a lot on our elective when we were in Cambodia and Vietnam, where one day would be like solid sightseeing and going around and seeing the temples and all that kind of stuff. And the next day would be chilling in the same coffee shop all day, just ordering iced latte after iced latte on our laptops. And I thought that was like <laughs> the perfect kind of holiday where that sort of stuff is happening. And I think in the past, I've sort of felt a bit weird for doing that. But like, hey, I'm on holiday. I should not work. And I should like hang out with my friends and stuff. Right, yeah. But I think I've realized I've, I've become, I've come to kind of accept that part of myself more so that actually I do quite like time by myself on my laptop doing my own stuff, whether it's on holiday or not. And the gang seemed totally cool with that and they got it. And it was nice to sort of feel accepted for that rather than to feel like a pariah. I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can. I think it's often branded as like antisocial or whatever. Mm. Which I think is a little unfair. Like, do what you want. Yeah, I think five... I can definitely completely unplug for a weekend or a long weekend, you know, three days. Mm. Five days, I'd probably want to do, do some work and other things and so, solitary activities. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, were they, I feel like there were a few other insights. Um, one insight that was interesting, um, this might be, might, might be worth discussing, is the idea of kind of putting your own needs and wants ahead of other people's. Okay. In the, sen in the sense of like... In the, in, in the context of like friendships, whereby I think my model before was that if I'm friends with someone, then to be a good friend, I should kind of be there for them and stuff. And, you know, let's say like, like, for example, I think in the, in, in the past, if I, if I had people in my room who were just kind of hanging out and I actually wanted to sleep, I would have felt very bad about being like, all right, guys, I genuinely need to sleep. Everyone leave. Um, right you know i'll be calling it a night 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 kind yeah. of thing and i feel i've i i I would have had the sense of like to be a good friend i need to prioritize kind of what the group wants or what the friend wants rather than what i want which is to value my sleep and so we were talking about this on in one of our in one of our dmcs in the group and what these guys were saying which is pretty reasonable is that actually that's that's it's it's totally fine to be a bit selfish and kind of value yourself more than in a way like valuing yourself more than you value other people's needs and wants and obviously there are some clutch circumstances in which, you know, something really bad happens to someone, you sacrifice your own like personal whatever for the sake of them. But broadly, I think what well, what the insight was is that it's not necessarily, maybe it is selfish to be selfish, but it's not necessarily bad to be selfish in terms of, you know, a lot of the tech bros, people like Naval and stuff would say that, you know, the single most important thing in my life is getting eight hours of sleep and nothing else trumps that. And actually just making that a rule and not feeling bad about prioritizing your own sleep over like the fact that your friend wants to hang out or the fact that your friends are chilling in your room, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I've been thinking about that in the context of like different sorts of relationships, like within the context of a family, I think 
you know, it, it, it seems like sacrifice and compromise seems to be like kind of by default what the morally good thing to do is that, oh, if you, you know, if you, if you are self-sacrificing, that is a moral good. Whereas if you're prioritizing yourself over the needs of other people, that by default is considered to be morally bad. Um, I've just been thinking like in what contexts, because obviously there's like a, there's like a balance here. You don't want to be a total, you know, only thinking for, uh, only thinking about yourself and not at all thinking about other people. But I think sometimes I go too far in the other direction where I prioritize other people too much over myself. I'm just trying to get that balance a bit more right. What you're trying to say is you're, you're just too nice a guy. This is a real problem. <laughs> I've actually been reading a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> is that about this or? Um, it's about generally this. Uh, he talks a lot about, about like nice guy syndrome. Um, about kind of, so th this is a guy who's been kind of counseling and men about this sort of stuff for ages about how, and as his part of, part of his spiel is about how kind of like the way society has told men to behave. It's in a very kind of, you need to be a nice guy. You need to be good. You need to be self-sacrificing. You need to put other people's needs ahead of your own. And that is what makes you a good man. And what he talks about in this is that, you know, a lot of people will kind of take that too far and become too accommodating and too supplicating and too all these kind of negative words. And that very adversely affects their relationships. And a lot of, he, he talks a lot about within the context of like husband wife dynamics, where the guy, the guy's view is, Oh, I'm, I'm such a nice person. I like do the chores. I like, you know, I say yes to whatever she wants. I'm, you know, if she says she wants to hang out rather than me hang out with the boys, I'm like, cool, I'm going to prioritize the wife because that's, that's what you do. And about how how he this guy the author of this book apparently counsels these men to have a bit more self-respect and put their own needs ahead of their wives like some of the time yeah and how like they're always always like oh no i can't possibly do that because you know she's gonna feel really bad that i'm prioritizing i'm i'm going out with the boys rather than hanging out with her one like two nights a week or whatever um and count somewhat counterintuitively it turns out the wives actually respect this and they're like oh it's really great that you're actually making time for yourself and doing your own stuff rather than just focusing on me all the time and so that's like part of the spiel of this book. But um, I, I first read this around 10 years ago, I think. You read No More Mr. Nice Guy 10 years ago. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago. It was when, and I think it was when I was approaching the end of secondary school. Um, I just came across it. Like one of my, well, a friend recommended it and said, oh, hang on, this was, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting. I think I read, I read it then and I, I think it had, I, I, I don't, I, I can't quite remember what impact it had on me then because I wasn't really taking notes and stuff when I was reading books. But I do remember thinking, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. Like, I'd very much bought into the narrative that to be a good man means to be self-sacrificing in all, as all aspects of life. And I would feel actively feel bad when I was prioritizing myself over the needs of, like, I don't know, mum or friends or whoever. Yeah. And that, bo that, that book kind of was a bit of a correction of, like, oh, actually, no, it is okay to prioritize myself. And kind of revisiting that, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I, I remember reading this 10 years ago and the thoughts I had then. And I think... Yeah, it was just it was, it was just interesting within this context of like this balance between being selfish and being like altruistic slash selfless in the context of relationships. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think as you said, like it's completely down to the balance. Like I imagine, you know, if if there are particular situations you have in mind from your own life where you've kind of gone too far, I imagine this is like, oh, whoa, you know, hmm. I don't have to do that or whatever. I also imagine a lot of people listening would be like, you know, might be thinking, yeah, that seems like perfectly good advice, you know, be selfless and stuff like that. Like so many, so many men are really selfish and entitled and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think it's just like, it's obviously one of those things that's, that's about the balance. And it sounds like you're, you found a better balance for yourself based on this. Uh, yeah. I want to show, yeah, I think so. Or I think I'm kind of working towards finding a better balance. It's, it's, it's more about this feeling of like, for example, on this on this holiday, I kind of felt a little bit guilty that I was like abandoning the group and going off on my own. And it's it's that like internal feeling of like, I am I am a bad person for doing this that I'm trying to get over and thinking, actually, no, I'm the sort of person that yeah, I quite enjoy having, you know, a few hours in a hotel on my own on my laptop to do some work. And that's totally fine. And I think yeah. it's the the it's that final bit the and that's totally fine mm. that I need to learn to be more like self-accepting of rather than and this makes me a selfish prick. And therefore, this is something I need to <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I think the, the thing you mentioned about the sort of husband wife examples from the book, sorry, let me mute my slack. Yeah. I think the husband wife uh, examples are interesting because like th there's almost like two opposing tropes, right? There's, there's the trope of the, uh, you know, there's, there's very much one trope in society of like, you know, in, in, in a marriage, like 
the husband is signing away their freedom the wife calls all the shots you know a husband has to like ask permission to do anything you know that this is this is one trope of like hmm. wife has all the power and then there's another trope of like which i think i think is part of the general sort of you know men are bad sort of narrative slash trope which is like you know men are really selfish really entitled really privileged all this kind of stuff you know they don't really think about women's needs you know all, all this kind of stuff right and so it's interesting because there are like two opposing tropes and uh again i imagine like when you when you say say the um the first trope of like uh you know in a, in in many marriages you know woman has all the power man loses all his freedom you know, et cetera, et cetera. there'll be people who hear that and think oh my god like that's so not true you know men have all this privilege and you know all, all this kind of stuff because they're sort of that, and that, which is kind of the other trope and, and vice versa yeah but like i think obviously both of these extremes do exist mm. like definitely i mean even amongst my own friends both of these extremes exist even amongst my own friends parents both of these extremes exist like um yeah i just think it's it's quite interesting yeah definitely just to see i'm, I'm just looking through the highlights that i made to see if there was anything that particularly resonated um this was nice this was a <coughs> This is something he says in the introduction. Personally, I couldn't have predicted 15 years ago that I would be sitting where I am today. Throughout the years since, my ongoing mantra has been, I love waking up in the morning not knowing how my day is going to end. I've discovered that when people let go of the inaccurate roadmaps they developed in childhood and begin searching for more helpful life paradigms, they open the door for an amazing adventure. And that really kind of resonated with me because I think, again, recently I've been thinking a lot about like the medicine stuff and, you know, do I want to go back to medicine? That whole like that old chestnut over and again over over and over again yeah and it's just always this balance between like if i if i imagine my if i'm if i imagine myself aged 40 i just have no model for what that looks like outside of being a doctor because <laughs> there are basically no 40 year old dudes that i know who are not doctors <laughs> oh, wow. um, or have have much contact with anyway either they're doctors or they're kind of like working some some sort of corporate job kind of vibe and i think we've talked in the past about how you know reading books and listening to podcasts and stuff can give you an idea of these also other sorts of lifestyles. Like, you know, I'm sure Tim Ferriss's lifestyle as a 40 or 40 something dude is not the doctor slash corporate person job, but you don't really see what their life looks like from just listening to them in a podcast. So you can get a lot of their ideas, but I think I've just, I just have no, it, it just feels like such, it feels like very foggy when I kind of try and imagine my life in the future. And I think this passage particularly resonated when he says, I love waking up in the morning, not knowing how the day is going to end. Um, for me to just be like oh yeah i actually can i actually can be too completely okay with uncertainty and i don't need a defined path yeah i just kind of see what happens go where the wind blows all that kind of cliche stuff oh here's another one i really like this this is good um so he says one thing that's become clearer to me since i finished writing no more mr nice guy almost 20 years ago it's this so this is the kind of the preface to the second edition or whatever like 20 years after after it's first published when it becomes a bestseller and so on he says recovery from the nice guy syndrome is not about becoming a better man or getting rid of anything Nice guys have been trying to do both since childhood. Recovery is about becoming more you. You don't have to become a better you to be liked, to be loved, to get your needs met or have a good life. You just have to be you. It actually is all the things that you've tried to become or tried to eliminate or hide about you that have gotten in your way all of these years. My profound wish is that this book will help you help you rediscover, accept, embrace, love, and be you. And so this oh. is like a long-winded saying of being like, just be yourself, bro. Love it. <laughs> yeah. But I think... Uh, the, this this was particularly interesting for me as well because I skew quite far towards the, um, you know, I, I think I'm broadly broadly happy with myself, but I also recognize that I'm deficient in areas A to Z, and therefore I want to improve actively improve it all these all these different areas, and so I'll actively go out of my way to try and improve anything about myself that I feel is deficient or not worth improving and or or, or or needs to be improved, and I think again I've sort of gone so far in that direction that the advice of hey, it's actually okay to just be you and you're fine as you are and stuff. Mm. Feels like novel and like, whoa, <laughs> are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> nice, man. That's great. <laughs> sure, I understand. Sounds like Siri doesn't quite get it, but I get it. It doesn't quite get it, yeah. That's cool. I mean, look, I think, um, I think from a, a listener's point of view, it's hard to know what you really mean when you say this stuff and what you really mm. feel. But, uh, um, but it sounds good. Sounds like you had a solid weekend then. Pretty solid weekend, yeah. Go back a couple of days ago. Had a good time. Back to work. Awesome. Well, now that we've got the small talk out of the way, <laughs> I had something that I wanted to chat about. It is a uh, blog post slash article written by a chap called Simon Saris, who I follow on Twitter. Um, 
Let me see if it's short enough for me to read aloud. And if it's not, then I highlighted most of it. So <laughs> great. <laughs> Winning. Yeah, this was one of the things where I, I'd been following this guy on Twitter for a while and I love his tweets. He posts like lots of pictures. He, he seems to live this very like uh, trad life in some like farmhouse somewhere in the countryside. He has like, a, I don't, I don't know if it's a wife, girlfriend, whatever. And they have like a little baby and they, they post like very, very like almost like Vic, Victorian hmm. <laughs> vibes of like cooking. A cottage core. Is that right? Yeah. Very, very, <laughs> very like cottage core. Yeah. Yeah. Just like very trad <laughs> and it's really cool. Um, and he also turns out has a newsletter slash Substack slash blog. And so I read this thing. And then I just like saved all of his blog posts to my Insta paper and read a bunch of them as well. Okay, this is actually not very long. <coughs> Gosh, is it? All right, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read it. I know people have mixed feelings about me reading long things on the on the podcast, so I'm, I'm just gonna do it so that we can have this discussion. Okay. All right. It's entitled "The Most Precious Resource Is Agency." All right. The world is a very malleable place. When I read biographies, early lives leap out the most. Leonardo da Vinci was a studio apprentice to Verrocchio at 14. Walt Disney took on a number of jobs, chiefly delivering papers from 11 years old. Vladimir Nabokov published his first book at 16 while still in school. Andrew Carnegie finished schooling at 12 and was 13 when he began his second job as a telegraph office boy, where he convinced his superiors to teach him the telegraph machine itself. By 16, he was the family's mainstay of income. Readers, and often biographers, tend to fixate around the celebrity itself when people became famous or fortunate. But the early lives, long before success, contain something revealing. Before you grasp, you have to reach. How do they learn to reach? In my examples, the individuals were all doing from a young age as opposed to merely schooling. And while they may not have wanted to work, the work was nonetheless something that, they, that, that both they and society felt was useful, something purposeful and appreciated. In a sense, they had useful childhoods. Do children today have useful childhoods? Agency is the capacity to act. More subtly, an individual's life can continue with a certain inertia that will lead them on to the next year or decade. Most people today more or less know what they're going to be doing for the first 20 or more years of their life. It's being in some kind of school. Uh, the doing is almost more being told what to do. Beyond that age, there is, of course, the proverbial worker. In modern stories, usually an office worker who's often so inert that he becomes blindsided by a sudden yank of reality that forces him out of his inertia, and in doing so, the story begins. You know, classic, uh, classic sort of trope. Gaining agency is gaining the capacity to do something differently from, or in addition to, the events that simply happen to you. Most famous people go off script early, usually in more than one way. Carnegie becoming a message boy is one opportunity. Asking how to operate the telegraph is another. Da Vinci had plenty of small-time commissions, but he quit them in favor of offering his services to the Duke of Milan. And of course, no one has to write a book or start a company, but imagine instead if Carnegie or Da Vinci were compelled to stay in school for 10 more years instead. What would have happened? There's a subtitle, Conservation of Agency. History happens only once. It never repeats. I find it striking just how early and how varied the avenues were that allowed one to pivot off script, to do something differently than everyone else. For a 13-year-old today, what is the equivalent of being a telegraph office boy, where he can learn the technology while contributing? What about for a 16-year-old, 21-year-old? What is today's equivalent to being a studio apprentice of Verrocchio? Where are the studios anyway? The world until recently was overflowing with on-ramps of opportunity, even for children, and we seem to do poorly at producing new ones. Modern complexity may have erased some avenues for agency, uh, no boy can meaningly learn the telegraph, but I suspect how we've oriented the world, not technology, is the main problem. 13-year-old Steve Jobs called Bill Hewlett and received a summer job at HP, which would be unsurprising in Carnegie's time, was certainly surprising for 1968, and is obviously verboten today. We seem to... what? Verboten, like not... It, it, it wouldn't be allowed today. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, we seem to have a political public imagination so shallow that it cannot conceive of what to what to even do with children especially smart children we fail to properly respect them all the way through adolescence so we have engineered them to be useless oh, in the interim here we go <laughs> yep <laughs> there's the punchline <laughs> i was wondering when this was going to come up i was like where's, where's it going with this and now we're like oh we don't respect children fine <laughs> we we do not need children to work that is abundantly clear but by ensuring there is nothing for them to do we're also sure to destroy more on ramps towards making meaningful contributions 
contributions to the world. Much of the fault for this lies in an attempt at systematizing skill and knowledge transfer so thoroughly that people begin to conceive of it as a task of school rather than a normal consequence of work. Because of this shift, childhood contains the age where one can intuit very well how the world works while being prevented from acting upon it meaningfully. Instead of an adolescence full of rites of passage where one attempts to master something and accept responsibility, we have made it full of waiting and doing work, for school is work, that nearly everyone knows is fake. After a time, all children spot this fakeness and all honest educators note it. Who could blame young adults for thinking that work is fake and meaningless if we prescribe fake and meaningless work for the first two decades of their existence? By confining meaningful work to an adult-only activity, it is little wonder that adolescence is a period of great depression. It would be surprising if it was, if it was not. Even for smart children, education endlessly ushers them towards an often far and always abstract future, so far and abstract that some children seem to apprise the opposite of agency. They take on a learned helplessness and downplay that the future is a reality at all. This is not worship of employment, but a simpler observation. It seems that the more you ask of people and the more you have them do, the more they are able to later do on their own. It is important to note that while we shouldn't allow children to be bobbin boys, I don't know, I don't know what that is, uh, maybe like some child labor type exploit. Um, while we shouldn't allow children to be bobbin boys, no one would describe Steve Jobs' summer job at 13 as his exploitation. We should be thinking much harder about making sure children can make meaningful contributions to the world. Seizing opportunity requires opportunity to exist at all. And I suspect the downplaying of agency in childhood not only creates fewer opportunities for great people, it must also create more marginal people. Ushering everyone into an endless default script is disastrous when underlying conditions or assumptions change. Even when they don't, some people exit academia almost terrified to leave, a kind of Stockholm syndrome. How could we celebrate a higher learning that creates something so pathetic, the opposite of a readiness for life? Um, he says uh, in brackets, systematized youth is by far not the only culprit of a loss of agency. By attributing success and failures almost exclusively to outgroups, systems, society, etc., modern ideology seeks to actively downplay agency. There is no reason the world must stay this way. The internet has already rebirthed some informal skill transfer that once existed. This constitutes a beautiful reawakening of meaningful work for anyone interested, and is one of the most significant changes from the prior decades. For that matter, there might it's a typo in there. There might be more tools than ever for clever parents to root around the destruction of a meaningful adolescence, but that does not make it less disquieting. He says, there are good reasons that programming is now the typical industry for precocious children. It is something parents can still allow their children to do despite systematized schooling, and is also one of the few industries with a permissionless culture. You don't have to ask anyone. You don't have to get a building permit or be a professional. You can just create. This too is a big change from the pre-internet era, and incidentally the reason I became a programmer. I wanted to make things. School did not offer avenues to create, but GeoCities did. GeoCities used to be uh, Yahoo's like, make your own website on Yahoo kind of thing. You could like make a custom website. <laughs> um, in fact, it was one of the only sources in my childhood simply saying, you don't have to wait for professionals to tell you how to make stuff. You can just make stuff. The art of creation causes imagination, not the other way around. To understand this is to understand the ecology that fosters the unique. Agency is precious because the lucidities that purposeful work and responsibility bring are the real education. The secret of the world is that it is a very malleable place. We must be sure that people learn this and never forget the order. Learning is naturally the consequence of doing. That's it. Nice. That's really good. What are your thoughts? Um... I'll start with my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my thoughts are like, yeah, it sounds pretty spot on. Yeah, I think... Um, I think childhood is like nowadays is, is broadly just a period of waiting. Like even if I remember as a kid, it was like it was it was broadly a period of waiting. It was a period of waiting until you become an adult, you know. Okay. And that's not that's not to say that makes it like wholly bad, you know. Like you still had you still had fun and stuff. You still did things, you know, whatever. But broadly, it was a period of I, 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 yeah. For, for, I think the sense I got was that the point is to get to the end of this and become an adult, um, mm. and that and that's kind of what you know. That's kind of what we're doing. And I think, I think this, you know, I, I tweeted about this earlier this week. I, th I think there's this really sad assumption that childhood is a, it's a means to an end. Like the, the point of childhood is to produce an adult, hmm. right? Whereas, you know, it's 18 to, you know, 20 something years of a, a human being's life in which I think, I think in the tweet I said something like, you know, in which you have, you know, broadly a lot of the same sort of desires and wants as an adult right you like you want respect you want some autonomy you want you want to be able to make a meaningful contribution to something and yeah i think the thing that really stuck stuck out to me from um simon saris's post 
was this idea that like making a meaningful contribution to the world is assumed to be an adult activity. It's like, hey, as a kid, like you're waiting around to become an adult at which point then maybe you can make a meaningful contribution to the world. Mm. There's, there's nothing really telling you that you can make a meaningful contribution to the world as a kid. And pretty much everything is, is implying the opposite, actually. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. Uh, like what I, what I was thinking as you were reading that was actually that um, I often get a lot of emails from kids being like, hey, I'm 13 and I want to help you out with this. I'm 15, I want to make a Discord for you. And I just immediately dismiss them because they're kids. Are you serious? And, yeah, and as I was, I was as you were reading that, I was thinking, why am I immediately dismissing them because they were kids? I I was a very enterprising kid when I was like 13, 14. Like, if I could get like a kid who's like 13, 13 to 16 years old and like super on it to help with various aspects of the business, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I think I just have I've just sort of as an adult have brought, have bought into this script that oh, if someone's under 18, then they're basically not worth talking to, particularly. Genuinely, wow, that's yeah. I find that really surprising. I'm very surprised to hear that. Hmm. Why, why, why do you feel that way? I mean, yeah, I mean, you were messing around with computers when you were a teenager as well. Like, mm. yeah, I don't know. I've just never really examined that particular. I, I spoke to this 15 year old kid from India a few weeks ago and he like reached out and sort of did it in like a really good, like intelligent way, like asking a very specific question. And so it was just be like, you know, you know, just hop on this 15 minute call and made it super easy. And we had a chat and he was like, it was like really cool. Like I, I would have thought he was like 25 by the way that he was talking. And he was kind of doing the coding stuff. He was running his own startup, trying to do like microfinance stuff in India. And I was like, bloody hell, this guy's cool. Um, and I just remember thinking, wow, <laughs> 15 year olds these days. Um, and so that that sort of stayed with me. But like over the last few days, I've, I've seen a few emails in the inbox. You know, I'm, I'm 13 and, and I want to help you with this thing. I'm 16, I want to help you with that thing. I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking, oh, it's just too much effort to, to talk to a kid and figure out something for them to do and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But now that you, 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 you've read, read this article, I'm actually, I'm kind of thinking I should make some sort of kind of, hey, if you're a kid and you want to work for me, here is some stuff that needs doing. And if you can do a good job, then I'll happily pay you for it type kind of system. That'd be quite cool. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know why I've just sort of bought into this model that if you're under the age of 18, you're not worth speaking to. <laughs> oh, dude, that's pretty messed up, man. I'll be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> wow. I remember when when I was younger, like the the times where I felt most alive was either when I was kind of uh, struggling to do a raid in World of Warcraft before being called down for dinner. Um, <laughs> but the other times in which I felt most alive was when I had like website projects to work on. Right. Yeah. And it would like, you know, in year eight French classes at, at the back of my book, I'd be kind of plotting out the kind of MySQL database structure for this game that I was making. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, my God, this is so good. And then break time, I'd be sort of like typing, typing stuff away. And then yeah, I'd yeah. get home, I'd get home and then I'd be on whatever it was at the time. Yeah. Whatever text editor was <laughs> was fashionable back then. And that really felt like I didn't at all have the feeling that childhood was like waiting for anything at all. Yeah. Because it was like because each day was so like... And I, I remember having the thought at one point, I think when I was like 14 or something, which was that like, because like, it, it felt like every single day, something cool was happening on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially around the time when I was kind of advertising my service as a web designer. And so I'd be bidding on like five to 10 projects every single day and kind of trying to convince these people to hire me yeah. as a 13 year old kid to be the web designer. Yeah. And like, you know, I'd I'd be in school. I'd get home from school, log in, and suddenly I'll be like, "Oh, there's 14 messages to reply to." Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single day there was like progress being made. Yeah. And that was such a profound feeling of like excitement and like kind of life is worth living kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Because this is so good. The agency, man. The agency. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you know the the internet really enables that. But like, I can't. You know, I I I'd find a hard time to think of like ignoring the internet. If you're a kid who's not naturally drawn towards that's that stuff and you might be naturally drawn towards something else, it seems a lot tougher to do something about it, to create something, make a meaningful contribution in that. And so and ignoring ignoring the internet, yeah, but like the the, the internet is the world. And so I think like y you don't have to be into the kind of computer programming side of things. Yeah, yeah. Now all these yeah, kids make like doing absolutely like sick stuff on TikTok and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um but and I think that is the the medium by which again like permissionless anyone can go viral kind of yeah. kind of stuff so that's like a really cool part of it where i think when we were younger the only avenue kids actually had to exercise autonomy was become a computer programmer whereas now 
kids can become a computer programmer and do stuff like that, like this kid, this Indian kid was doing uh, with microfinance. But they can also do the become a TikTok person and do skits that are genuinely funny or just get really good at dancing. And like, there's all this stuff that's now unlocked that I think yeah. wasn't really around when we were younger, where the only real avenue was either get really good at computer games or become a computer programmer, all of which fulfills a very specific <laughs> kind of archetype. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the whole like uh, content creation, content, content <laughs> creation industry, it kind of lets you channel whatever your interests are into the act of creation mm. and into making some kind of contribution in the world, which is, which is really nice. Yeah. Huh. I like to think about the scripts um, kind of going off script as well. Like, I feel like I like, I like the sort of stuff because it's sort of the, the, the confirmation bias for me of like, oh yeah, I'm the sort of person who's been, uh, who's lived life a little bit off script. Um, but then I, I think, am I really like, I don't live life that off script. Like there's so much more off script stuff I could do that I just haven't done because I'm following some kind of invisible script of, I need to have a stable job. I need to have a certain amount of prestige. I need to earn a certain amount of money. Um, there's always more layers. Always, yeah. The princess is always in another castle. So Super Mario reference. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Hmm. And start hiring some kids. Right, child labor. <laughs> Let's get cracking. <laughs> I'm glad that's been the, the the takeaway of this episode. On that note, I think a hundred years ago, there were plenty. There was a lot more normal opportunities for kids to exercise agency, take responsibility over things, and make contributions to things. There's, I've you know, read a few books about the. Uh, childhood as a concept and how it's changed over time and stuff like that and there's a good highlight there's a couple of good highlights from one of them let me find it this is a book called the history of childhood and so you know there were you know for most of probably most of history at the very least for large periods of history tons of kids were exploited for child labor obviously you know plenty of kids in the world continue to be exploited for child labor that's bad and that's that's not the kind of contribution or work that is being talked about here um, <coughs> right, so I'll, I'll read two highlights. The first is this. Although there has never been a time when children did not work, society and governments and historians have tended to distinguish between children working in family businesses such as farms or small shops and those employed in the extractive and manufacturing sectors of the economy. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a difference between a kid being sent off to work in the mines or the factories instead of going to school mm. versus the kid helping the family business on the week on evenings and weekends or whatever. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, this whole chapter of the book is about like how child labor laws changed in uh, sort of the turn of the 19th century. Um, anyway, this is the highlight, um, testimony in court cases involving the injury or death of children in factories and mills revealed that many children appreciated the chance to contribute to their family's survival. Boys relished the opportunity to prove their masculinity while children of both genders enjoyed the relative freedom of working outside the home. Um, yeah, I guess like it's, you know, it back in the day, um, sort of companies as like the standard thing people work in, you know, some kind of company that employs you, that was much less of a thing, you know, a hundred years ago. And so there'll be uh, more, many more people would have had small business, you know, their families would have some kind of small business or whatever, et cetera. And that's a very natural opportunity for children to take responsibility, contribute to the family, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Whereas now, uh, I think I think the um, the landscape of work is much more sort of centralized. Um, sort of, you know, most people work for you know, in, in the UK, for example, work for some kind of large organization rather than run a small business. And so, like, you know, your kid can't, can't bring your kid to work and then just send emails, right? Um, so there's, there are fewer avenues for children to contribute in the traditional kind of world of work. Um, but yeah, internet, internet's great. Nice. All right, that was that. Good stuff. Um, maybe we'll end with a, an insight of the week. I'm just opening up my twitter.com. All right, I'll read a tweet that I wrote today. So cool when you're on a train and there's another train moving alongside you. Wish that happened more often. That's my insight of the week. Great. Love to hear it. I will uh, read a review. Oh, we're on 16,000 subscribers for our YouTube channel now. Nice. It's pretty good. Oh, man. There's a, fi okay, there's a five-star review. It's kind of long. It's the only new review since last week, so I have to read it. It's entitled Ali, Ali, Ali. All right, this person is called The Gram Lover from the United States of America. They say, let me start by saying that I'm a subscriber to your YouTube channels, Ali, and I'm a fan of your work. 
However, after listening to you speak about your worries and strategy for online dating, I just want to shake you in brackets oh, wow. with, okay. with, with loving concern and frustration. Yep. Um, please consider these thoughts from a happily married woman who wants to see you find love and happiness. One, cultivate a new mindset about the women on your apps when it comes to ranking them. Think of them all as people deserving of affection, love, and attention. Ranking them, I can only assume according to how they look, is not only offensive to all women, including the top 10%, I think that's a phrase you mentioned, but it's a turnoff and a red flag. We can sniff out the men who think this way like hound dogs on the scent of a fox. Root out this mindset as much as you're able. Two, online dating is not a competition with other men. It's really not. Instead of trying to be the most interesting and entertaining guy on the app, think instead about how you can be the kindest, wisest, most confident, most thoughtful version of yourself. Three, one way you can show that you're a kind, wise, thoughtful man is to cultivate genuine curiosity about the women with whom you're speaking, be it online or in person. Don't ask a question that you don't care about the answer to, e.g. how was your weekend? Ask questions you actually want to know the answer to. Don't be afraid to ask big questions or personal questions. Women like answering those. Women want to talk to men who like hearing what they have to say. If you start asking real questions, they'll be so busy answering and enjoying speaking their minds and hearts, they'll be eager to meet and talk more and you won't have to entertain them. Anyway, that's the review. What are your thoughts? Mm. Interesting. Mm. I appreciate the perspective. Um, I think if we were here to talk to talk in person, I'd probably push back against some of those points because I'd love to kind of expand on them in a bit more detail. Yeah. They sound very idealistic and... I would love for the, I, I would love for all of those points to be true. Um, <laughs> in my experience and that of most of my friends who are on most of my guy friends who are on dating apps, those things are not particularly true in the real world. Although we would all love them, love, love for them to be. But yeah, I think it's very hard to like. It's it's just such a nice a nice series of points that for me to even attempt to say that well, yeah. <laughs> It's just gonna. I like there. There is no context in which I don't come across looking like a dick in that situation. <laughs> um, for having the audacity to point out that maybe, well, maybe the online dating marketplace is a little bit, you know, competitive and is kind of based on looks. And maybe if I don't know, you're getting a few dozen matches, then it's very hard to quote rank them on anything other than kind of the things that you see on the app, which are like a handful of photos and a handful of prompts. But again with the massive risk of running coming across as an absolute dick for arguing with what is a very, very, very reasonable sounding, like very wholesome and nice kind of comment. So, yeah, which is why I was reluctant to kind of make any comments about this. Yeah, I understand. But I think, yeah, I think with the podcast, like as, as it's gotten bigger and as, yeah, I don't know, like a big, a big part of me think like as, as you were reading that, I was, th- I, w- I was kind of thinking to myself, I have thoughts on this. Yeah. But I don't think those thoughts are suitable for the podcast. I think um, if the person if the person were here to have a discussion about it, it would be very oh yeah, yeah. but it's very hard to kind of make points against a sort of uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I appreciate the review. Um, yeah, definitely. Thanks for that. Thanks Excuse for leaving that. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Goodbye. Nice. How long was that? That was. that's it for this week thank you for listening if you like this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts or on the apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iphone there's a link in the show notes if you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum question or just anything that we could discuss yeah if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. if you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly that's fine as well tweet or or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.